stars could shine between the lines if you would let yourself go find some place you know you can use your words use your hands you can change the world you just pretend express yourself take a chance and you'll see who you'll be it's time to express yourself where teens talk and the world listens Presented by Star Style Productions as an international outreach program of Be The Star You Are charity. You'll rock to an hour of adolescent fusion with your teen hosts and on-air reporters. Meet and chat with cool celebrities, exhilarating experts, and tenacious teens with subjects regarding anything and everything that you want to know. It's time to kick off the fun with our star teens. Welcome to Express Yourself. May we think of freedom not as the right to do as we please, but as the opportunity to do what is right. Peter Marshall. Hello and welcome to Express Yourself. We're a program by, for, and with creative young people. A platform to give teens a voice right here on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. From Cynthia Bryan, producer of Express Yourself and Star Style Productions, we bring this program to the airwaves as an outreach service of the Be The Star You Are charity, a top nonprofit honored by GuideStar and great nonprofits. For today's show, Be The Star You Are wants to thank everyone who has volunteered and supported BTSYA over the years. We are thrilled to be serving the world. If you'd like to help us celebrate being a top nonprofit with a donation, please visit www.btsya.com. Every dollar counts and we will use the funds for our outreach programs. Make sure you listen to Express Yourself wherever you listen to radio or music. iTunes, Amazon, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, and more. We broadcast from the Empowerment Channel and Voice America Radio, the largest radio network in the world. I'm your host, Ruhani, and today's show is all about the 4th of July. In the second second segment, I will be interviewing Dorothea Johnson, an author who writes about U.S. history in a very fun and engaging way. In the third segment, I will be talking about my thoughts on the 4th of July. And right now, I will be talking to our newest reporter, Kirthi, in her segment, Nerd Extraordinaire. Hi, Kirthi. As per usual, salutations from your favorite nerd extraordinaire. Title up all the credits. See what I do? Did the? Eh? 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 Anyone? No? Nobody? Okay. Hello there. I'm Chuthi, and I'm back again with my segment, Nerd Extraordinaire, where I share my experiences as a middle school fiction writer slash debater. Happy Independence Day, says every single person you know. Just for a little contrast, I'll wish you a magnificent Independence Day. Holland, what in the world could I, a scrawny 13-year-old intellectual at the intimidating height of five foot nothing, teach you about Independence Day? Well, sit back, kids, because it's time for an impromptu history class at peak summer break time, just to make sure that you're not having too much fun. In today's segment, we're going to talk about how the delegates from the 13 colonies debated with three resolutions who debated on what side, and how these events led to the signing of the Declaration. For the non-debaters, a resolution is a debate topic that is affirmed by one side and negated by the other. The affirmative side mostly proposes a change within the status quo, while the negative side believes that the status quo should not be changed. The status quo portrays the current actions that are factually being executed right now. Surprisingly, the process that led up to Independence Day involved a hearty amount of debate. Because, let's not forget, debate's main purpose is not to entertain gangly middle and high schoolers, but to make important decisions within the government. I'm going to give you a sun-scrubbed, lightning-lapid, down-to-earth, sports-commentary-style recount of the debates, complete with adjectives. Lots of adjectives. We really like the word promulgate, because it sounds fancy. Think Oscar Wilde, H.P. Lovecraft-style adjectives. It'll be like reading a pre-U.S. version of Dorian Gray, or maybe a horror story about George Washington being possessed by Cthulhu. Let's set the scene. The 4th of July, 1776. This day is marked by the Second Continental Congress announcing the separation of the 13 colonies from Britain and adopting the Declaration of Independence. Independence Day was only recognized as being remotely significant more than 30 years later, within the post-happenings of the War of 1812. It was declared a federal holiday in 1870. In 1775, 
the belief that the colonies should stay loyal to the throne was quite common. As hostility between the colonies and Britain arose, the idea of independence was promulgated through Thomas Paine's Common Sense pamphlet. On April 12th, the delegates from North Carolina proposed a resolution of independence that didn't require communication with Congress. On May 10th, John Adams proposed a resolution that in one scenario portrayed each of the colonies as having separate governments. This resolution instigated copious amounts of debate since it was caused to wholly rely on the local government and the eradication of all royal authority. This was affirmed by the New England colonies, but other colonies were quite uncertain. Another resolution was adopted that proclaimed that Congress make and sign a declaration of independence. Richard Henry Lee, an aristocratic delegate from Virginia with the most eloquent of behaviors, combined these three ideas to create a resolution, which, word by word, is resolved that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that it is expedient forthwith to take the most effectual measures for framing foreign alliances, that a plan of confederation be prepared and transmitted to the respective colonies for the consideration and approbation. Richard Henry Lee was voted first over Thomas Jefferson for Virginia delegation. Jefferson, Washington, and Benjamin Franklin were all not as good as debating. So, for all you debaters out there, think that you're most likely better at debating than the first president. Lee and Adams created a Massachusetts-Virginia alliance, and they were considered the leaders of debate there. Adams was another star debater. According to Jefferson, Adams was not graceful, nor eloquent, nor remarkably fluent, but he came out occasionally with a power of thought and expression that moved us from our seats. He didn't have traditional refined speaking skills, but something about how he intertwined those words was powerful. Massachusetts, Virginia, and friends were debating on the affirmative side, and the grumpy guys were Pennsylvania, New York, and South Carolina. Well, they were grumpy according to Thomas Jefferson, who says that they were not yet matured for falling from the parent stem, basically calling them big grumpy babies. One of these grumpy babies was John Dickinson of Pennsylvania, who was more quantity than quality. Don't be big babies, guys. But don't worry, the babies grew up and they were reluctantly accepted. Long story short, everyone lived happily ever after. The declaration was signed on the 4th of July, but only properly published and publicly read on July 8th, which is why the 8th was originally considered Independence Day. Adams and Jefferson both died on the 50th anniversary of July 4th, and from then on, July 4th was celebrated as the birth of Indi American independence. Wow, Kirithi, that was so interesting. And I always love learning about Adams and Jefferson's friendship because the fact that they both died on the anniversary of July 4th is so interesting to me. And it always kind of creeps me out too. But going back to what you're saying about debate, um, you gave us a brief explanation of how John Adams' words were powerful and how can other debaters learn from Adams and make their arguments powerful as well? The key is to poke holes in your opponent's argument. One technique that I think really breaks the atmosphere and changes everyone's mindset is a critic. Not critic with a C, as in movie critic, but critic with a K. K-R-I-T-I-K. -I -I a critic is, like I said, groundbreaking. It targets any of these. Epistemology, the development of knowledge. Methodology, the evaluation of methods. And ontology, the nature of being. Critics assess ethics, morals, things that already exist in the world and use them as impacts, rather than listing out scenarios where, oh, this many people will die, or this many wars will happen, or this much money will be lost. See that the key word here is will. Impacts are what they sound like, the effects that your argument will prevent. Critics are normally used in policy debate, which is debating to change a policy in the government, which is kind of what's happening here. I see, that is so interesting. And really what motivates you to come up with arguments inspired by these historical debaters when, you know, you don't really know their exact arguments. I feel like you can get the same out of both knowing the arguments or just knowing the debate styles. By debate style, I don't mean parliamentary, Lincoln-Douglas policy, yada, yada, yada. I'm not talking about that. I say debate style like writing style. The way they, as an individual, present the argument, the way they individually create the argument in a way unique to them, you can use this as inspiration to create your own arguments and deliver them. I see. And you said that Jefferson was not an active debater. So 
How is he describing everyone's, everyone else's debating styles? He wasn't an active debater as much as he was an active writer, and he's renowned, even in the present day, for being a good writer. He actually wrote many documents and prose that are integral in today's government. He was known for taking notes in stealth while everyone else debated, which is why he's so well-versed in the debating styles, because he was studying both their styles and their arguments rather than participating actively. Believe it or not, you can learn from good old Jeff here. Obviously, you shouldn't be quiet the whole debate, but during impromptu class files or examinations, instead of cutting over your opponent while trying to prove your point, actually listen, listen to what they have to say. First of all, you won't come off as too aggressive or belligerent to the judges. And second, you can actually make your job easier by listening because it can give you another chance to prove the opponent wrong. Yeah, and debate can be really tense. Like, I know it's super nerve-wracking. So do you have any advice on for, like, how these leaders maybe you know, how they dealt with, you know, nerves and stuff. I feel like if you just imagine, just close your eyes and imagine that you are in a room, you are the only one talking in that room. There's no one looking at you, no one listening to you. And then you can really develop that confidence that you need. That's really good advice. And going back to what you said about Jefferson and how he's trying to convince people to become independent, why were people reluctant to become independent in the first place? Unfortunately, the people had obtained John Dickinson's views, but in less of a grumpy baby way and more of a worried citizen way. In the past, the government was considered an authority of higher importance than the people, and a new government with democratic values independent of the much larger, much more experienced English government seemed to be riskier than necessary to them. The army was better, and in the 18th century, monarchy was portrayed in the media to be a supreme form of government. And the abundance of monarchies caused some people to think that monarchy might be the right way to go, since it was everywhere. After Thomas Paine knocked some sense into these heads, see what I did there? Sense? Common sense? Eh? Eh? No? Okay, I really need to stop this. Anyway, gradually the idea of independence spread through the 13 colonies with Thomas Paine's knocking. Wow, and since we're just like talking about debate styles, how would you describe yours? Now, if you wanted a completely honest answer to that question, it would be, I don't know. But judging from what I've concluded, I've been told that I'm pretty aggressive, but I'm not, I think, I don't know. Sometimes aggression can be good in debate because it can show that you actually care about what you're saying. It can show that you're arguing for the side because you believe in it, but sometimes it can make you come off like you're fighting. That is true. Well, thank you so much, Kirthi. That was really informative and interesting. And make sure our listeners stay tuned for our next segment where I will be talking to Dorothea Johnson about her new book. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Are you a teen interested in becoming a radio personality? The Positive Message Outreach Program of Be The Star You Are Charity trains dedicated young people to be reporters and hosts on Express Yourself Teen Radio. Visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com for information. That's ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Don't forget to tune in to Express Yourself Tuesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Kids, where teens talk and the world listens. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to Express Yourself on the Voice America Kids channel, where teens talk and the world listens. Express Yourself is produced by Star Style Productions, LLC, as an international outreach program of Be The Star You Are charity. For more information about our show, visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Now, back to our star teens. Hello, and welcome back to Express Yourself. We have a very fun and talented guest here today. A former teacher, Dorothea Jensen, has written two award-winning novels for young readers about the revolution, A Bus from Lafayette and The Riddle of Pencroft Farm. Her passion for history and her delight in versifying led her to create a short rhyming biography for teens, Liberty Loving Lafayette. Welcome to the show, Dorothea. 
Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on it. So before we get started on the questions, do you mind reading a little bit from your book? Well, I what I'd like to do is just read the opening four lines and then read a little bit more after that. But I, I thought that the opening four lines pretty much set out what I'm doing with this story. Okay? Sure. I can't wait to hear it. So listen up, my children, and I'll do my best to tell how a teenaged French aristocrat served all of us so well. Without his help, we might have lost our fight for liberty, and we'd still be lowly subjects of the British monarchy. I love that. I actually <laughs> took AP United States history this year, and it's such a hard class. And I actually did a project on Lafayette um, of how he helped oh, us during the revolution. Really interesting. And, you know, I wondered, you've written like two books about him, and he's a really interesting character, but why Lafayette specifically? Well, I started out, um, actually, I, I just became very, very interested in the revolution in general when uh, we moved to Philadelphia in 1976, which, of course, was the beginning of the bicentennial of the revolution. And and so my kids uh, learned how to ride bicycles at Valley Forge, and we went to all the historical sites and so forth. But then we moved back to Minneapolis, and I was concerned that they would lose that immediate sense of history that they had with uh, Revolutionary War history. So that's why I wrote The Riddle of Pencroft Farm. But then I mentioned Lafayette in that story, but... Um, I didn't really say too much about him because, frankly, I didn't know that much about him. I really didn't. I really hadn't met him, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and it wasn't. <laughs> and it wasn't until 1997 that I happened to meet a woman who, um, whose great grandmother had received a kiss on the cheek, a bus on the cheek from Lafayette in 1825 and that when he was on his farewell tour and that kiss had gone down in the family and of course she was the last recipient of that kiss so of course immediately I asked her to kiss me and she did so now I can say that I've been kissed by someone who was kissed by someone who was kissed by someone who was kissed by Lafayette <laughs> but that was the first I'd heard about his farewell tour and I started doing research uh, on his farewell tour and discovered that he came to my town a small town here in New Hampshire and he went right by my house so I I just felt it was meant to be so I ended up writing at this historical novel uh, about set during his his uh, farewell tour about a 14 year old girl who has a number of problems and during the course of the novel she learns a lot about Lafayette and also she she possibly meets Lafayette, who helps her figure out some of her own problems. So anyway, um, I I um, I I what the more I read about Lafayette, the more I fell in love with the man because he had primarily because he had such a great sense of humor about himself. He had a very self-deprecating sense of humor. And I don't know if you came across any of the stories, but there are many many stories of of him saying things that you could tell he was not this stuffy aristocrat. He was genuinely interested in other people. Everybody, you know, a lot of the Frenchmen or any of the Europeans who came over and demanded high ranks and high salaries and all that kind of stuff were really um, a detriment to what we were trying to do. But for some reason, everybody loved Lafayette. And I like to think that they talked about his charm. And to me, I think that charm means you have a genuine interest in other people, a genuine interest in other people and their concerns. And I think that that was definitely true of him. When, when, he, um, when he first got here and was talking to Washington uh, and Washington showed him our pitiful troops they you know had no equipment and they were not trained and every, et cetera et cetera we were pretty much a low ebb at that point he said to washington i have come here to learn not to teach so he had a very good attitude and it's it made him 
very beloved, not only by the people in the army who called him our marquee as an affectionate term, but by the American people as a whole. People knew who he was. I mean, even 50 years after the beginning of the re revolution, they really knew who he was and they they knew his story. And it was um, it, it was just I couldn't stop writing about him. I think I'm done for the moment, but you never know. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, he is super, super cool to learn about. Um, I remember learning about how he like helped us during like one of the battles specifically. I don't remember the name. Brand Brandywine. It was Brandywine. Yes, that one. Yes. Uh, um, well, uh, let's see. I can read you what, what he did if I can find it. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Uh, okay. For one thing, um, uh, uh, when he first arrived, he was not welcomed with open arms at all, because, as I say, so many other European officers had showed up and demanded this and demanded that. And um, and it wasn't until they they weren't going to give him um, a rank at all be, uh, until they got a letter from um, uh, Silas Dean and Ben Franklin, who are our agents in Paris, who said, look, this guy he is really well connected. He's one of the richest men in France. He is related or he knows all of the aristocrats and even knows the king and the queen. So really, I think you better let him, you know, play in your yard. <laughs> and uh, and but what one of the things they said was um, give him a high rank, but make sure he doesn't do anything very dangerous because we don't want him to get injured. It would really be, uh, it would it not forward our cause with getting French aid. Okay, so this is what, what I said. This is the letter, it's sort of the letter. It's talking about how when he arrived in Philadelphia, he did not get an exciting, thrilling welcome. Just a minute. All okay. right. When he arrived in Philly, though, despite his famous charms, nobody welcomed him with even slightly open arms. Oh, not another foreigner. We have more than our share and such a young and raw recruit. We simply cannot bear the gall of Mr. Silas Dean. Gun buying is his task, but he gives lofty ranks galore to all of those who ask. But just in time, some letters came from far across the sea, from Dean himself and Franklin, who were stationed in Paris. He is both rich and famous, this Marquis de Lafayette. His friends are French aristocrats and Queen M. Antoinette. Just give him a high rank and let him bask in glory's glow. But keep him safe, for heaven's sake, and never let him know. But just a few weeks later came the fight at Brandywine, and no one could make Lafayette avoid the battle line. For when the Brits outflanked us with a most effective trick, he sallied forth into the fight and helped out double quick. He rallied men who'd panicked and were trying to run away to stand and fight, and thus he tried his best to save the day. But to his disappointment, his brave efforts hit a wall when his leg was penetrated by a British musket ball. He was taken off to Bethlehem to help his leg wound mend, while the Brits invaded Philly, occupied it in the end. So he really did, I mean, we did lose the Battle of Brandywine, but... Um, it was, I'm sure, he, this is a, a true story. He was taken after his leg was injured, uh, when he was shot in the leg on the battlefield at Brandywine, they took him to a farmhouse and laid him, laid him out on a dining room table so that the doctor could dress the wound better. And in the middle of this, in walk-in, General Washington and all of his top aides, and obviously they're probably quite down because they've really just lost a major battle that one of their first really major battles and Lafayette who's lying on the dining room table looks up at them and says boy I, I hope you don't mistake me for dinner <laughs> <laughs> I'm the only food on this table or whatever something like that and so I think he probably gave them a little bit of a lift in their spirits just by saying something 
like that. You don't expect someone who's just been wounded to make a joke like that. But that was the kind of thing that he did all the time. Yeah, and without him, we probably wouldn't have won, I don't think. I mean, he played a really, really important role. That's super interesting. And how did the research go? Did it take you, like, a long time to, like, collect stuff about him? Like, did it take you longer than the actual writing process? Or was it, like, the opposite? Well, it was kind of interesting because I actually had already done the research for writing A Bus from Lafayette, the novel. So I... I had already learned all this stuff, and I want to tell you that I really wasn't planning to write a poem of a Lafayette. (laughs) It's just that I do love writing rhyming verse. I've written a number of books for uh, kids, for school-age kids, that are sort of modeled on Twas the Night Before Christmas and All Through the House, you know, the uh, visit from St. Nicholas. And... I just, there's just something about putting those words together. I I mean, it's really, I wouldn't call it profound poetry, but it's telling, it's storytelling in verse is what it is. And um, and so as a result, I, I just found these couplets, rhyming couplets were popping up in my head about Lafayette and I tried to ignore them. I really did <laughs> because I, if if you look on the internet, you won't find much in the way of rhyming poetry other than, of course, Hamilton. And that was one of the inspirations for me when I when I did this. The only other the only other piece of poetry that I can remember uh, is um, uh, the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere that was that was written by Longfellow in the middle of the 19th century. And uh, I had to memorize it in fifth grade, which feels like it was 150 years ago. (laughs) I don't really remember much of it by heart. But uh, then somebody said, well, what about the Iliad and the Odyssey? Well, I I think you have to be willing to consider them history to say it's rhyming history, but it's rhyming something anyway. So I just finally gave in and said, oh, heck, I'm going to see what happens. And the, the pandemic started and I was locked in anyway. So I thought, I'll just see where this goes. And this is where it went. I love that. And your poems are so captivating and interesting, especially, you know, when you're young in elementary school, history is really boring. Like I'm not going yeah, to, it's not fun, but make it engaging the way you do, then obviously it becomes fun. That's why so many people like Hamilton. So yes, why would fans of Hamilton, the musical, enjoy this book? Well, I I have um, a lot of the same elements in it. Now, obviously, I'm not a 20-something <laughs> young man, but uh, but it I did try and model it on Hamilton in to the extent that the rhythm, it has very, you know, interesting rhythm. It's rhyming, and I, I feel it full of modern slang, at least what modern slang I know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and and it's interesting because Kirkus reviews wrote about about this poem and what they said they they referred to Hamilton and they said Hamilton did an engaging modernized portrayal and it, then it says that my I also provide a similar fresh take on Lafayette so people are comparing it to Hamilton so I think that that's a great compliment. It definitely is comparable. Um, I've never, <laughs> I've never really watched the play. I've listened to some songs, but yeah, it's really, really like engaging, and I love that. To how to well, like- p- part of the, part of the problem is that those of us who are huge Lafayette fans, and you just might be one of those, <laughs> is um, uh, when they do watch it, they walk away and they say, yeah, it was good. It was good. But there wasn't nearly enough about Lafayette. <laughs> so one of the reasons I wrote this was to write something engaging about Lafayette. And the way I like to describe it is that I say, find out what Hamilton left out. So that's sort of my little thing that I use. <laughs> yeah, I am definitely a Lafayette fan. <laughs> I read a lot about him. So it's really, again, he's, he's a really cool guy. He was. Absolutely. And actually, Lin-Manuel Miranda called Lafayette America's favorite fighting Frenchman. And 
the Lancelot of the revolutionary set. So you do you like find these to be super accurate and why? Well, I think they are pretty accurate. Um, uh, well, well, we'll deal with Lancelot, first of all. Of course, Lancelot was a very young, idealistic warrior who lived and actually was from France, like Lafayette. Name began with L. He had a three-syllable name. They had a lot in common there. But he also went to England because he wanted to uh, live in, in a country in which he was a stranger, but that he felt that he believed strongly in the ideals. So in this case, it would be, of course, King Arthur and the the uh, round table. And the reason the round table was appealing was because nobody was sitting at the head of the table or the foot of the table. Everyone was of the same status. So similarly, Lafayette was in France and he was a young warrior. And uh, many, many Frenchmen did end up fighting for us, especially at the end of the war. There was a whole army under Rochambeau that came and marched down to Yorktown from uh, New York State. And, um, and, and But Lafayette really did played a profound role in the success of the war. He um, not only was he an excellent military commander, and um, after Brandywine and a little skirmishing that he had, uh, the very his very first command, because you have to understand that at Brandywine he didn't have a command. He just right. ran on. He just ran onto the field, and whoever was around him, he said, "Okay, guys, come on, we got to attack. Stop running away." <laughs> and they did what he said. I mean, more or less. But um, so, but after. He proved himself at Brandywine and also uh, at in Gloucester, New Jersey. Uh, General Green had given him a very small command of a few hundred men, and he attacked a bunch of Hessians and was very successful. And Green described him that he set, he seemed to search for danger. And after that, George Washington gave him a division of his own to command. Now, a division, I looked it up, and you can find the muster rolls at Valley Forge online, that he was more or less in command. And he had just turned 20. He was 19 when he got there. Yeah. But he was 20. He had just turned 20, and he was put basically in charge of 4,000 men. Now, only half of them were fit for duty, but still, can you imagine? And there were only five divisions in the whole army. So Washington had a lot of faith in him, and that was a really unbelievable thing. For I mean, nobody had a higher rank in the whole army except Washington. I mean, he was yeah. a major general. That is a super high rank. So... Um, and, and, of course, it's kind of funny because when he started out, Washington thought it was all going to be just honorary. But nobody apparently told Lafayette it was just an honorary <laughs> rank. He was, by Jove, he was going to get a command or know the reason why, and he did. And and so, basically, the main thing he did, he did two main things for us. Well, more than that, but one was that in the middle of the war, he went back to France, and he just hounded the French court into giving us more aid because it was clear that, you know, they'd sent to staying over, but that didn't work out very well, that if they really were going to help us, they had to do it in a much bigger manner or it wasn't going to, we wouldn't win. And so that was the first thing he did was he really solidified the French alliance and got more aid for us. That's what the, the, the uh, song Guns and Ships is about that is in Hamilton. Anyway, um, let's see, where was I? Um, but the other thing that he did is he was sent after Benedict Arnold turned traitor and the British made him a general in their army and he was sent to Virginia and it was specifically to Virginia because Virginia, of course, was Washington's home colony. And so they thought it would be a very good thing to really lay Virginia to waste. And so that's what he was doing, Benedict Arnold. So Washington gave uh, Lafayette a command and sent him to Virginia to capture and to hang Benedict Arnold. Uh, and I just read a book in which they said basically he was told find a tree, a rope, and Benedict Arnold. But <laughs> unfor 
Unfortunately, he he was unable to do that because Benedict Arnold was ordered back to New York uh, before Washington, I mean, Lafayette could catch him. But Cornwallis showed up in Virginia with a big army and Washington, I mean, Lafayette had a very small army down there. He, I think he had something like less than a thousand men. I can't, don't quote me because I'm, you know, I'm not good at these facts, facts, toys and stuff. But he 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 wrote to Washington and said, <coughs> my force is so small, I can't even lose decently. Um, so uh, but what he did is he evaded capture or attack by Cornwallis's army. And the for several months, Cornwallis chased him all over Virginia. And and Lafayette knew that if he were caught, there was no way that he could do anything except lose. So so he was using sort of guerrilla style tactics to slip out of the way of Cornwallis. And Cornwallis finally gave up and went and went to the coast and started fortifying the town of Yorktown, Virginia. And Lafayette followed behind him there and pinned him down there. And because he did that, that meant that Washington and Rochambeau and the American and French armies could could come down. And uh, they could come down, besiege and um, uh, bombard the British into surrendering. And of course, that was the last great battle of the revolution. So if if, if Lafayette hadn't done that, Probably we wouldn't have won. Right. See yeah. I'm, so you'll never get me to stop talking about him. <laughs> no, no, I completely agree with you. It's so interesting <laughs> to learn about. And he was really brave. Do you have like any more like poems or like poetry about him? You know, his bravery sure. and his fight during the war? Okay, let me just, uh, let's see. I'll get the book out if I can find it. Um. Well, here's where he talks about, um, let's see, when he went to France to get more support. And in the end, France doubled down against the British foe. She sent more troops and ships and guns and also Rochambeau. But soon the British headed south, which they deemed loyalist and thought mistakenly all Southerners were royalists. The traitor Arnold joined them there, ransacking as he went to capture him and hang him high. Young Lafayette was sent. Arnold escaped, but our Marquis achieved a bigger goal, maneuvered most judiciously and whacked a bigger mole, for he bottled up Cornwallis at Virginia's town of York. And when DeGrasse's fleet arrived to place the crucial cork, by pinning down the British in the fall of 81, Gilbert set up the scene for independence to be won. He awaited the arrival of that consummate combo, the father of our country and the Frenchman Rochambeau. When Washington appeared with men, materiel, and horses, he put the boy in charge of nearly one-third of our forces. Thus, on the Yorktown battlefield, our favorite marquis, performed a starring role to win this final victory. So raise a cheer for Lafayette, who so loved liberty. Without him, we would not have won our independency. Wow, I love the rhythm in your poems and the rhyming. It's just so much fun. And <laughs> I, <clears throat> I had a great time writing it, I have to say. <laughs> I would just sit here and think of something and then chuckle and chuckle and go and read it to my husband. <laughs> uh, so how do you hope to use both of your Lafayette books to involve young people in the celebration of her victory? Well, uh, as you know, of course, the uh, I never can remember is it sesquicentennial. The 250th anniversary is coming up in a few years, but also in um, 2024, it will be the, two, the 200th anniversary of Lafayette's farewell tour. Now, this was a very big deal, uh, this tour. It never happened before, and nothing like it has ever happened before or after um, uh, in our history. And uh, people came from everywhere to see him. He, he went to 24 different states, which were all the states that were in the Union at the time. 
And everywhere he went, he was mobbed like a rock star, like Elvis. I don't know. And one fourth of the total population came to see him. It was like three million people came to see him. And he, he traveled around for about 13 months and he traveled 6,000 miles. Now, this was not a young man. He was 67 at this point. And he was the only major general I believe from either side that was still alive. But you know, when you start out at 19 to be a major general, you tend to outlive all the middle-aged guys who were who became major generals when they were like 50. So, um, and everybody knew who he was. He was very, very popular. And it was interesting because it it was right smack in the middle of a very contentious presidential election. I'm very, very. Uh, very upsetting because it was so close that it had to be decided by Congress and people were furious about it on both sides. It was, uh, you know, it all reminded us of recent history, but it was probably even worse. And to have this man come who was a universal hero for people of all political persuasions, who was politically neutral and hugely popular, what made an event that you know, people could come from everywhere, from both sides, and and enjoy everything that that happened. It was it was wonderful, and uh, as a result, I think one of, one of the things not only was he a hero in his own right, but people saw him as a link to the past, to a time from our past, fifty years before that had been a very important piece of history in and of itself. And not only that, but they knew that he had been a very, very close friend of Washington. And Washington had died 25 years earlier. So it was like, uh, you know, they they were able to shake hands with someone who shook hands with Washington, right? <laughs> or or even hugged him. Apparently, mm-hmm. apparently Lafayette was kind of a hugger. I don't think Washington generally was, but um, but he he really did love Lafayette, and people knew that, and so that's one of the reasons that they came out. Yeah. So, e- so even in those states, oh, how is I going to use? How am I going to use the books? Well, what I'm hoping to do, I'm dramatizing part of a bus from Lafayette that could be performed in schools and so forth by young people. That right. um, and it it sort of gives a picture of what life was like for people. This actually takes a place at a dance in in town, and. Um, of course, the dances are doing that they are doing or something like you'd see on um, a Jane Austen film or whatever. But, you know, that kind of line dancing and also the sense of excitement everybody has about Lafayette coming to town and, and that kind of thing. But the other thing is I am hoping that I can get people interested in performing my poem because the whole mm-hmm. thing, the whole thing only takes 15 minutes to read aloud. And I mean, it's pretty much the entire story of what Lafayette did for us in yeah. the revolution. And you can get through it in 15 minutes and they're kind of fun minutes yeah. too. And I think, and I think it could be incredible, but unfortunately we're out of time. But oh no. Oh, okay. Thank you so much, Dorothea. It was a really enlightening conversation and everyone make sure you check out her website, DorotheaJensen.com and Make sure you read her book, Liberty Loving Lafayette. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Right back at you. And viva Lafayette. (laughs) Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Are you a teen interested in becoming a radio personality? The Positive Message Outreach Program of Be The Star You Are Charity trains dedicated young people to be reporters and hosts on Express Yourself Teen Radio. Visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com for information. That's ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Don't forget to tune in to Express Yourself Tuesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Kids, where teens talk and the world listens. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
You're listening to Express Yourself on the Voice America Kids channel, where teens talk and the world listens. Express Yourself is produced by Star Style Productions, LLC, as an international outreach program of Be The Star You Are charity. For more information about our show, visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Now, back to our star teens. Hello, and welcome back to Express Yourself. And Fourth of July is um, is pretty much here, and I'm not going to lie, it feels a little weird to celebrate the holiday after the Supreme Court ruling a few days ago. Really sad, you know, Roe v. Wade being overturned is really a disastrous and regressive decision. But, you know, if we are truly to believe in democracy and freedom, then we should believe that things will get better. And I really hope they do, especially when my generation gets into office. And for this segment, I really just want to share some resources that is useful for people in need of an abortion in states where they don't where they won't be able to do so or anyone else who needs it. And number one thing now, and you might have seen this on social media already, is to not use a period tracking app. And I've actually mentioned that in another segment, um, another show, and one of the apps is called Flow. And so they will sell your data to those who pay for it. And they will also give your data away if there is like a court order for it. So I used to use Flow for a long time, and I actually just deleted it after the ruling. So I know I live in California, but Sometimes I like to keep some things private just to make sure, you know, it doesn't get sold and put into hands I don't want it to go to. And as for abortion itself, there are really two methods. So one is surgical and the other is medication. So if you need to find a surgical abortion clinic nearby, there's a website, um, abortionfinder.org. And I think this is a good one. It says that your information is private and confidential. And sometimes when you actually Google like abortion clinics, anti-abortion organizations will pop up. So unlike that, Abortion Finder will actually show you the abortion providers and also relevant abortion laws in the state. And let's say you live in a state with a lot of restrictions, then Abortion Finder will filter and allow you to find the nearest clinic. So that's really, really important. Now, let's say you opt for a medical abortion, and you might have also heard, heard this already. There is something called a Plan C. So even if abortion is illegal where you are, abortion with pills is still an option. Um, it's unclear where states will plan to go with these pills, like if it is like able to be prosecuted. But for now, it's a legal option, so make sure you keep it in mind. And another thing that you should keep in mind is that abortion pills work best in the first 11 weeks of pregnancy. So if you use it like afterwards, it is less effective, might not work, and it can be really painful. So please, please keep that in mind. And the risk of complications will go up as the pregnancy grows. Um, For cost, abortion pills, um, the Plan C, it can cost anywhere from $40 to $600 or more. And... Some online pharmacies and new telehealth abortion services will charge $150 and up. So if you want to get it from a clinic, though, I mean, if you're like in a state that still provides abortion clinics, then it will cost $600 on average. And there is um, basically the medication is called misoprostol. So that's one option. And that can be found online in bodegas or even in other countries, and it costs between $40 to $300. But make sure that what you're buying is the real thing. You're not getting scammed. It's not something that's dangerous. The Plan C is safe and it's not dangerous, but if you get like something that's faulty or a pill that's designed to look like it but actually isn't, there can be obviously severe you know, repercussions. So make sure you're being safe when you buy them. And if there are some pro-choice organizations who you want to support um, at this time, then here's some. There's the African American Women for Reproductive Freedom. So this is a group developed as a way for African American women to show support for Roe v. Wade. There's the American Civil, Liber- Civil Liberties Union. That's like the oldest one. It'll help you out. And obviously, Planned Parenthood. I know. Uh, It's probably going to be harder to find it in other states, but again, abortionfinder.org will help you find a clinic that is safe and will help you. 
Now, going back to the plan C, this is where all the pills are available from. So for clinics, like if you're in a state that still um, provides abortion clinics, have an in-person visit with a doctor, get the pills to take home and take the pills at home. So, and if you feel anything, make sure you get some support after just phone or text the doctor up. There's also telehealth services. So make sure you do a medical consultation using your phone or computer and you can receive the pills by mail, take the pills at home. So again, right now, abortion with pills is an option. Um, it's not illegal. So that's always a good option and a safe option. Make sure you don't use, um, you know, there's been like herbs, like I was reading, like herbs or something that can cause an abortion, but they're not as safe and they can be dangerous for yourself. So make sure you're using an actual plan C instead. There's also online pharmacies. So some international online pharmacies sell abortion pills. You don't need a prescription. You don't need medical screening and you just get advice. So again, you receive the pills by mail and you take the pills at home and you can have support through mahotline.org if needed. Yeah, so this is all the advice I have right now, all the information I can give. And there's a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of organizations. There's a lot of ways that you can find support and it's a really difficult time um, I really hope things get better and I hope everyone's staying safe and they can celebrate themselves as much as they can and enjoy this weekend. But I hope you enjoyed our show today. Unfortunately, we are out of time for today's show. As always, we express our gratitude to Star Star Productions, Cynthia Bryan, Be the Star You Are, and our Voice America Empowerment crew, especially our audio engineer, Josh. Thank you to our guests from across the world and a huge thank you to our listeners for making us a top-rated program. For more information about Be The Star You Are charity, visit www.bethestarur.org. Find us on Instagram at Express Yourself Radio. Have a great 4th of July. Celebrate Independence Day. Make sure to vote for politicians that believe in democracy and not lies. Lies. Stay safe and enjoy the fireworks. As always, remember to speak up, speak out, and express yourself. Thanks for joining us this week on Express Yourself, produced by Star Style Productions, LLC, as an international outreach program of Be The Star You Are charity. For more information about our show, be sure to visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern, when teens talk and the world listens on the Voice America Kids channel. Until then, remember to express yourself. Stars could shine between the lines if you would let yourself.